What's up, church? Glad to be here with you this morning. Today, we are going to wrap up our series in the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, have you guys been enjoying it so far over the last month and a half or so? Um, so we're going to wrap that up today with the last church. Um, for the past seven weeks, we have been going through the seven specific messages that God has to seven real churches that were around 2,000 years ago. And, um, and hopefully for you, this has been a lot more um, than just reading everybody's mail. Okay, some good, some bad. Uh, but hopefully for you, it's been more of, um, we've been able to view these messages as to, from God to us here today. Because every single one of us, we're all the same. We all struggle, all right, with different things at different times and different seasons. And sometimes, you know, we may feel like the church in Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum or, or Thyatira, we're tolerating sin in our life. You know, we feel a lot of these things that these churches are struggling through, we have all struggled through that stuff as well. And so John, I don't think, was any different. In fact, I bet when John, because we know John struggled too, I bet as John is writing this stuff down, as Jesus is dictating these messages to, to him, as he's writing it down, I bet he's feeling the exact same thing that a lot of us have felt over the last month and a half as we've been, as we've been going through this. So remember, at this point in history, the Roman government has been coming down hard on this new belief in this Jesus guy. Uh, John is probably the, the last remaining church leader left. We know Paul, he's been beheaded at this point. Uh, Peter, he was crucified uh, by Rome at this point. James, man, James, he was thrown off a building at this point. And so John, everybody, all the original church leaders or the original 12 disciples that we would view, they're probably all dead except for John, who has been banished by the Roman government because they can't get him to shut up about Jesus. And so um, John tells us in Revelation chapter 1 that John, he's doing his thing. He's in a prison camp on the island of Patmos, and uh, he, he turns around one Sunday morning, and all of a sudden, bam, he's in the throne room of God, remember? And he turns around, and he sees Jesus, right? He's actually, in his own words, he says he sees a white-haired, fiery-eyed, glowing skin, sun-shining face, Jesus, and remember what he does? Like, he doesn't run up and say, oh, what's up, Jesus? How you been? How's it going? You know, he doesn't go. I know some of you guys are like huggers. And so he doesn't go, oh, Jesus, you know, and like guns up. Or give him the man pat, like two pats, you know. No more than that is weird. No rubbing for sure. Like, he doesn't do that, okay? He doesn't go all professional and say like, hey, Jesus, man, I just want to let you, I want to shake your hand. Thank you for dying for me. This is about 60 years after Jesus rose again from the dead. Like, 60 years ago, you died for me. I'm just so thankful. He doesn't do, he doesn't do that. No, what John does is when he sees Jesus in the way that he described Jesus, he falls on his face like a dead man, he says. Can't even, like, stand up to him. In fact, Jesus has to reach over to him. Jesus is like, hey, man, it's me. <laughs> you know, this is what I look like, okay? And he reaches over to John, who's in his 90s at this point, okay? is at the end of his life. And he reaches over, he picks John up, he says, hey, John, I got a job for you. All right, I want you, I have a couple messages, or really seven messages to seven different churches in the area. And I want you to write those down. I want you to get, and I want you to send them out um, to those churches. And so one of the last things, really the last church that Jesus talks about, one of the last things that Jesus says to John, he says, I want you to write to the angel. And remember this word for angel, it just means pastor or leader, all right, or messenger. I want you to write to the pastor of the church in Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was a huge city, okay? Laodicea was an extremely wealthy city. It was about, if we look at the modern-day map, modern-day Turkey, Laodicea was about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia, the city that we looked at last week. And, um, and Laodicea, they, it lied 
um, or lay, I guess, on the, uh, on the Lycus River Valley, which was a river that went through there. They were not the only major city in this, in this area. There is actually Heropolis in the north, and then there was Colossae over in the east, and they're about eight miles from each other, so pretty, super close, and they all worked with each other, and they all traded with each other and did business with each other. Now, Colossae should sound familiar to some of you, hopefully to a lot of you, okay, because there's an entire book in the Bible dedicated to this church, all right? Paul, um, years before, had actually written a letter to the church in Colossae. We call it Colossians. Yeah, there you go. All right, we call it Colossians. And, um, and actually, in Colossians chapter 4, what Paul tells them to do is he says, hey, I actually wrote a, a letter to the church in Laodicea, the church that we're looking at today. And he says, what I want you guys to do after you've read these letters of how you're supposed to live your life and the correct theology and all that stuff, if, after you've read those letters in church on a Sunday morning, I want you guys to go and exchange those letters and then read each other's letters, okay? And so we still have the letter to Colossae from Paul. We do not have the letter to Laodicea from Paul, but we knew that one existed at one point. And so um, Colossae and Laodicea, they were, they were close to each other. And uh, Laodicea, though, was a lot larger of a city. Laodicea was an extremely affluent city. They were an extremely wealthy city. In fact, you can still see parts of it here today. Um, there's more of Laodicea, probably more ruins of Laodicea than any of the other cities that we've been looking at. They had temples and buildings and stadiums and gymnasiums. They actually had two theaters uh, right there. This one sat over 20,000 people within this huge city. And uh, this city was, was really known for, actually, actually, most of the cities, all the other cities that we've been looking at, they were known for one major industry, you know, like one major thing that they were just kind of known throughout the Roman world of this is what they do. Laodicea was known for three. Um, and so they were extremely wealthy because of that. Uh, one thing that they were known for was their clothing. Okay, Laodicea, uh, the surrounding mountains and the surrounding area around them, uh, they would breed these like black sheep that had glossy black wool. And so Laodicea, because of that, it was extremely expensive. It was something that you couldn't really find anywhere else in the Roman Empire. And so Laodicea was kind of like the fashion center of the Roman Empire. So rich people from all over the world would come to that city, to this city, and uh, just to buy clothes and rugs made out of this black, glossy wool that they couldn't get anywhere else. So they were known for that, for their clothing and the further fashion. They were also known for their banking. In fact, they had many huge regional banks within the city, and so they were known for their money and for their finance. And it was a place where the rich in the entire region, everybody would do business and do their banking in Laodicea. Not only that, but they were also known for their medical advances in Laodicea. Like, it was almost like the medical center of the Roman Empire. They had a school of medicine there. Uh, they invented medicines, actually different medicines, especially what they specialized in was the treatment of people's eyes, which was a big deal back then. And so they treated uh, disease and had medicine to treat eye disease and blindness. And um, the wealthy, again, would travel all over the world to get treated in Laodicea, especially if they had any issues with their eyes. And so this city, as you can imagine, was unbelievably wealthy. And they flaunted it. And they wanted everybody to know that they were independent and that they had money. In fact, in 60 AD, there was this huge earthquake. We've actually talked about that over the last recent weeks because it has affected every single city um, for the last three or four, three or four weeks. Um, in 60 AD, there was this huge earthquake that really decimated the city and decimated all the cities around it, including Laodicea. And really, the whole city 
just was reduced to rubble. And there was a bunch of people who died. It was known throughout the Roman Empire. And so Rome, what they did is they got together and they put together a stimulus package. That's what we would call it today. For these cities that were completely leveled by this earthquake. And so, um, you know, cities like Philadelphia that we've looked at, Thyatira, Sardis, all of them got this stimulus package. I'm sure Colossae did as well. But Laodicea, when they received their money, as Rome was trying to help them rebuild this glorious city, they actually sent a message back to Rome that said, we lack nothing. It's almost like a slap in the face. Laodicea is like, no, 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 we don't want your help. They're saying, we don't need you. In fact, because they sent that message back to Rome, it made the city famous. And it was true. This city lacked nothing except for the one thing that you need the most, and that's water. All right, the water of this region was uh, mineral rich. All right, this might look like snow to you. It ain't snow. All right, this is actually calcium buildup. This is where water runs. All right, this is what all the rivers and streams look like there. Uh, it's just calcium built up uh, because the, the water is extremely hard and it's extremely mineral rich. It's still like that today. And so they had water in Laodicea that you just couldn't drink. In fact, it smelled super bad. It smelled like sulfur. Now, I, uh, over the last decade, have lived in Green Springs, and so I know what that sulfur smell <laughs> smells like. Okay, it's what I wake up to in the morning or what I used to. So um, that's what this place smelled like. It was water that you couldn't drink. And so the city, and they had the money to do it, they actually built these huge aqueducts that, came, that, that ran you know, far away to bring water from all these different areas into the city. And so while the city took pride on being completely independent, they're actually very much dependent for the most important resource. And so Jesus introduces himself to this city. And he says, thus says the amen. Now that's the word that we all use when we pray at the end and stuff like that. But back then, this was a, this was a legal term that he is using. It it's actually really means, it means agreed upon. Okay, that's why I think we've all gotten in the habit of saying that at the end of a prayer. It's like, okay, amen. You know, the whole church agrees upon that. And so, you know, it means more. I don't know. I don't know. You know, but that's what that's what this was to these people. And so especially in this city that was known for their banking and their contracts, and so you'd you know, sign a contract with somebody and you'd stamp it, amen, meaning agreed upon. And so Jesus is introducing himself as the agreed upon. All right? He's the agreed upon Savior. He's the agreed upon all-powerful God. He's the agreed upon truth, the agreed upon life, the agreed upon hope of the world. He says, it's me, the one and only, amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. See, it's almost like he goes, he goes all the way back to the beginning. He's like, hey, um, guys, church, he's saying, remember like all the way back? Like all the way back to the beginning? Like when the universe was created, like way back then? He's like, I just want to let you know, I was there. And it was sweet. You know, he's like, I was I, I actually... I, I, I watched it happen because I did it. All right, I created it. Everything that we see, he actually created. He is, he's saying, I am the creator. 
I am the originator. See, that's the Jesus that we worship, right? That's, that's Jesus. That's the God that we worship. That's the God who is worthy of our praise. There ain't some, like, oh, we got this, like, idea in our head of, like, Jesus who's, like, kind of, like, a soft, petting lambs, long-flowing, you know, hair, gentle, meek, weak, like, lame Jesus. Like, we have this idea in our minds for some reason. That ain't Jesus. Like, if that's how you view him, all right, that's not who he is. This is who he is, right? I mean, here's John that considers Jesus his best friend, you know, hadn't seen him for 60 years. He can't even, you know, he can't even stand up to Jesus. He can't, he falls on his face. He can't even look at him. I mean, here's Jesus. He's saying, he's saying, it's me. Remember, you only got two options when it comes to Jesus. Either you can bow or you can bow. It's the timing that's everything, right? Jesus is saying, it's me. It's, it's, it's from me. I'm the one who's writing this, all right? And I have a message for you. He says, I know your works, all right? I see what you've done. I've, I've, I've watched you. I'm studying you. He's like, I've, I've watched the tape on you. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. And I wish that you were cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. He says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, he says, I am going to vomit you out of, your mouth, out of my mouth. Now, if you're sitting here and you're, you know, if you're a Christian, you should be reading this. And you're like, whoa, okay, geez, like, like Jesus, well, what's going on here? Like, you know, this sounds, it sounds kind of harsh. Remember, like when your mom and you were little used to say, like, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Remember that? Okay. Apparently, Jesus didn't believe that because he doesn't do that here. He's got, like, nothing nice to say about this church. See, what Jesus is doing here is he is using an example of water uh, to get these people's attention. He's using the example of water, something that these people were extremely and very familiar with. Remember, I told you about these aqueducts that would pipe water in from all these different areas. Actually, there were two main areas where they would pipe water in. Um, near Heropolis, the city in the north, they had a bunch of hot springs up there, and so they would pipe water in from the hot springs. And then over to the east in Colossae, actually Colossae was known, there's kind of a mountainous region, and it was known for their ice-cold water, which sounds so refreshing to me right now because now I'm thirsty. And so they would pipe water in from Colossae or near Colossae in the mountains, the ice-cold water, and they'd pipe the hot water in from Heropolis. And, um, and by the time the water arrived in Laodicea, the hot water had cooled, cooled down and was just kind of lukewarm. And the ice cold water from the mountains had warmed up, right, and it was just kind of lukewarm. Now, I, you know, nobody likes lukewarm, right? Like, I'm, you know, like you coffee drinkers. I'm not a coffee drinker, so, you know, this is just you. I don't like coffee, whatever temperature it is. But, I, like, I don't know anybody either. You know, you, some of you guys, you got your hot coffee, right? You got it right now. Or some of you guys, you got your iced coffee, like it's one or the other. Like nobody goes and sells, like goes to, you know, wherever you go, Starbucks or whatever, and say, hey, I would just like a lukewarm cup of coffee that's been sitting around for a few days. You know, like room temperature, please. Like I've never heard anybody do that. This is because you either want it hot or cold. Um, I remember a few years ago, I took a group of students to Arkansas, all right, to um, canoe down a river for an entire week, Okay. And so um, it's one of those things where it sounds really cool on paper, or it looks really, but when you're actually doing it, it's miserable, okay? So we go, and, um, and so it was in the, it was like 105 degrees. It was like the coolest temperature of the entire time we were there. There was also a drought, so half the time we were just dragging our canoes, right, over the rocks of, with water. You know, it was just, just kind of like that. And so I remember at the end of the day, 
um, sitting in the river as the water is rushing past me, and I am just sitting there sweating because the water is like warm. It's like bath water, all right? It's not, you know, refreshing at all. It did not cool me down at all. And it was the same water that we were drinking all week, just lukewarm, kind of hot water. And it was it, because of that, like, you don't realize how, how nice tap water is. Like, I thought that was lukewarm. That ain't lukewarm. That's like kind of cold, all right? Um, but you just realize how, like, how good we got it when you're out in the middle of Arkansas when it's super hot and so far away from civilization, okay? And so um, I remember one day, it was actually on July 4th, I'll remember this probably for the rest of my life, we're, we stopped to get lunch and we stopped to drink our, our warm water and we, there's like a parking lot nearby and so I like, I was like, I'm skipping lunch, you know, I'm going to go up and I'm going to see like what we can find. I see civilization, you know, there's a car up there so, you know, maybe somebody will have a cold drink or something and so I walk up there and it was kind of like a, like a state park or something, I don't even know. But I found a Coke machine, and I was so happy. It was like the most beautiful sight in my entire life. And I was like, <gasps> I hope it's working. You know, I put a dollar in, and out popped out this ice-cold Coke, the, the drips dripping down, and I opened it up, and it was just like, you know, and you kind of hug it because you're like cold, you know, like, oh, I haven't felt this for days. And I remember taking that first sip, and it was like, it was the most refreshing thing I've ever done in my entire life. And it stayed cold for about two minutes, and then it was lukewarm like everything else. But that two minutes, I was living it up, man. All right, that was a good two minutes. See, the Laodiceans, unlike us, they're totally used to their lukewarm water. All right, they're used to drinking it. In fact, it was known in the ancient world that um, visitors, when they would go to Laodicea, which happened all the time because the, especially wealthy people would travel to Laodicea for, for their rugs and for their clothing and for, you know, medical procedures and just all this stuff. It was known that for visitors, they hated the water because it tasted so bad. And not only that, but it smelled bad. And not only that, it was, it was lukewarm. And it was known that when people drank this water, they would start gagging because it was really, really difficult for them to keep it down. Uh, have you ever eaten something so bad that your, like, natural reaction is just to, like, gag it up? You know what I'm talking about? We've all done that before. Um, when I was in high school, I went to a concert with a bunch of my friends at an arena in Toledo somewhere. I think it was on the campus of UT. And uh, we were there, and we were sitting, like, on the ground floor, and there's, I remember there's, like, I don't know, folding chairs or something that we were on. And this group of girls that were about our age, they kind of filed in and sat in the row right in front of us. And one of these girls had this bucket of popcorn that was full, and it was drizzled, all right, with, with butter. Now it was dark in the room. You know, it's kind of hard to see. But I'm looking at this popcorn. I'm like, man, she has got butter drizzled. Uh, it looked so good. And I was hungry. And I remember one of my buddies, they were like, you should, actually, what she did was she she had that popcorn, and then she went to stand up, and so she set that popcorn in the seat behind her, which was happened to be the seat right in front of me, and we're all standing there. So one of my buddies was like, you should grab, you know, a handful of her popcorn, and being a 17-year-old, you know, dumb kid, I'm like, okay, this sounds like a good idea, you know. So I went down, and I grabbed a handful of this popcorn, and I remember feeling the butter oozing between my fing fingers, and I was like, this is going to taste so good. And I popped that in my mouth, and in, within a second, you know, I realized it wasn't butter. What I realized in that moment was that that girl actually threw up, listen, in her bucket 
of popcorn, and then she put it on her seat, and I stole it from her for some reason, because I'm an idiot. And it was dark, so what I know? I was like, butter, that's great. And so, can you imagine how it was for me in that moment? Okay, all right, it was the worst thing ever. And so immediately, I spew it out of my mouth, but it's still in there, you know? Like, I don't got a toothbrush or nothing, and so, or a drink. And so I remember running out of, the, of my row and then trying to run up the stairs to, like, the concourse area where they did the concessions. And I am begging God that he would not let me puke because I am gagging. I'm getting ready to throw up. And there's people everywhere. I mean, this is a concert, so it's, like, wall-to-wall people. Like, there's no place that I could go in that room that I could not throw up on, like, six people. You know what I mean? Like, there's no, like, open space. I'm just hoping I could get to, like, the concourse of the arena that I could just throw up on the floor just so I don't hit anybody because it's about to be a disaster. You know, I start puking, then they're puking. You know, this is about to cause a chain reaction here. That's what I was worried about. And, and I, mean, I mean, it was just, it was just so nasty. Can you imagine that? That's what Jesus is saying here, if you can picture that. Jesus is like, man, you know, as he looks at this church, he's saying, your church is a lot like your water. It makes me sick. He's saying, it makes me want to vomit, right? It makes me want to puke. I look at it, and it's like I start gagging. Like, I don't think I can hold it in. Like, like when I watch the way that you live your life, he's like, he's like I, I like throw up in my mouth a little bit inside. You know, that's, what, that's what's going on here that Jesus is saying. And you know, like puking, you know, throwing up, welcome to grace is what we're talking about this morning, okay? <laughs> Jesus brought it up, by the way, not me, okay? But throwing up, like that's an involuntary thing. Like that's a reaction. He's saying that's my natural reaction when I watch how you guys, church people, Christians, Jesus followers, live your life. It's like me, a 17-year-old kid running to the bathroom trying not to throw up the throw up. Um, actually, when I got to, like, the concourse area, and I got into some light, and again, I'm, like, gagging, holding my mouth, I realized that on my hands, it wasn't puke, okay, which I was jumping for joy. It was actually mustard, all right? So what actually happened was this girl put mustard on her popcorn. For some reason, I think maybe she saw the, the yellow bin, and she pumped a few pumps thinking that it was butter or something. I don't know. And so she, uh, and so that's why she didn't eat it, and I did, I guess. And so when I saw that, like, it was the idea of perfect, buttery, you know, succulent popcorn that I was going to be eating, and then I got a mouthful of mustard that I didn't know what it was. It automatically, like, tasted like puke, and it has ruined mustard for the rest of my life. Like, I cannot eat mustard anymore. It makes me want to, I start gagging when I have mustard in my mouth because it, it, like, it, like, changed my brain chemistry. I think puke when I taste it. But I was happy, kind of, in that moment. But uh, thanks. I needed that. All right. But this is what God's saying. He's saying, God's saying, when I look at you, it makes me want to throw up. All right? It, it's gross to me. He says, it makes me, when, he's saying, when I see someone who believes in Jesus but doesn't want to follow me in every area of your life, He's like, that makes me want to puke. By the way, can I just say, he's talking to church people here? That's us? All right, if you're new here, by the way, and this is one of your first times, you're not even sure, like, where you stand with Jesus. He's not necessarily talking to you, okay? All right, he, what we know, what we see is he, I just want to let you know, is he wants a real, true, deep relationship with you. And you should go to him and start that today because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. 
But for us church people, he's saying, you people who play church as like a hobby, he's like, man, that makes me want to vomit. Makes me want to puke. See, the problem for this church is that it wasn't that they lost their first love, like Ephesus that we talked about weeks ago. It's like that these people, they were never fully in love to begin with. All right, this is the church that they didn't want to be fully committed. See, this is like the guy, you know, like the guy who's been dating the girl for like 10 years or so and just hasn't put a ring on it. You know, like that guy. Okay, why? Because he just doesn't want to commit. Okay, that's what this is. It's the same guy who's got like the relationship status that says like complicated, you know, like that type of thing. And the girl doesn't know what's going on, you know. And it's, it's that, see, this church didn't mind dating that guy. Or <laughs> dating that guy. Dating God, okay. This church didn't mind dating God. They just didn't want it to go further than that. They wanted the benefits of dating God without being fully committed to God. And I think we're the same way. I mean, if we really dig down deep and look at ourselves, like deep within ourselves, I think we have the same issue here. We are lukewarm people. People who at one time were hot or cold. They were useful to God. They were serious about about their relationship with God. They were pouring into that relationship. They were serious about their mission. We know what the mission is, right? What our job to do as Christians, what Jesus tells us, the last thing he tells us before he went up to heaven, right? To do whatever we possibly can to reach as many people as we possibly can for Jesus, right? That. But for a lot of us, I think lately, I don't know if it's summer, I don't know, you know, it's it's just how we naturally are because we're naturally sinners. You know, some of us, we're just like, man, we've just been off. We've been going through the motions. Like, we don't serve Right, we don't give, like we're not invested in our church. We just don't care. Right, we don't tell others about what Jesus has done for them. We have like the best news in the history of the world and we keep it to ourselves just because, just be, for our own comfort. So we don't have to have an awkward conversation. Man, we're lukewarm. Right? Some of us, we come to church only when there's like nothing else going on. It's like church is the last resort. Some people right, have gotten so... Um, so used to watching church online, all right, and that it's just like a habit. And we do that. Why? Because it's, because it's convenient. Can I just say this? All right, watching a service online, that ain't church. Like, it's just not. You know what the church is? The church is the people and you watching at home with your cats and, your, you know, on your couch. Like, that does, you're not doing church, okay? You could be getting fed, sure, and learning more about the Bible, I guess. But it's not church. We're supposed to be doing life together and you're missing out. We become lukewarm. Some of us, we choose to not be involved in our community. And, uh, and I'll be the first one to tell you, I hate politics. I've told you guys that before. I hate politics with everything that I am. And some of you guys are like, oh, here he goes again. I'm going to say, yeah, I hate this more than you do. Okay, so I'm just throwing that out there. All right, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. All right, so we can have different opinions on different ways that our government should be run. Okay, and I have, you know, I have my opinions. Okay, um, but, you know, some people might be like, well, I like big government. The more government, the better. And some of you guys are like, no, limited government. And you guys, you know, fight over that. And some people are like, more taxes. You know, the government owes us. And others of you are like, no, I don't want any more taxes. Please, no more taxes. Like that type of thing. And let me just say, that stuff is not moral issues. Like the Bible doesn't say, okay, you know, you should only have this size of government. Like the Bible doesn't say any of that in there. But there are some moral issues that unfortunately have become very political. And I wish that wasn't the case because, again, I hate politics. And the main one going on right now is abortion. And I just want to set the standard straight. Like, the Bible is super clear. God values life, which is a good thing. 
Like, that's a really good thing. And so we as Christians, no matter what our political preference might be, no matter if we're a Democrat or a Republican, on this issue, we should be united. And, you know, we should all be for women having the rights over their own body. I, I hate, you know, the, the government, I, in my opinion, should be out of, you know, telling us what to do with our own bodies. But in the one case of pregnancy along with the woman and her rights, which we should recognize, right, the child also has a right. And that is specifically a right to life, which is the base, most basic, you know, right that every single person has. You know, it's the most basic right we could have. And I don't think we have the right to take that. And so we as Christians should be fighting for that. And so, like this week, you know, we got the big, there's a big election coming up. We should all be voting yes on issue one, which literally is connected to children's lives. Like, I don't even want to know. It, it bothers me to know how many hundreds of thousands of kids' lives are at stake on Tuesday. And if the church doesn't show up, I'm just saying it's on us. It's on us. And whenever I mention abortion, I always, I always want to say, we know that there's people in this room who have had abortions. All right, we know that there's women who have had abortions here today. Um, statistically, we know that. We also know, because I know some of you guys, that we have leaders in our church, women who lead in our church, who have had abortions in their past. That doesn't disqualify them from God's love or for, for being a part of our church. And the thing that I want to do is recognize the emotional hurt, the pain, the guilt, and that shame that comes along with an abortion that those on the other side never want to talk about, but it's 100% real and it's there. And I just want to let you know, if that's you, that you can find forgiveness and freedom only with Jesus. There's nowhere else you can find it. And we're here for you as your church, and we want you here and we want you a part of us, like all of you, not just a part of you, not just different areas. We want all of you a part of us, right? We want you to bring your hurt. You can bring your pain. You can bring your guilt. We'll take it. We'll help hold that for you. We know what it's like to be messed up because we're messed up. Every single one of us, including myself. In fact, that's who Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about church people. Many of us, he's saying, have gotten lazy and fat spiritually, and it makes God want to throw up. And this is why. He says, you say I'm rich. By the way, they were rich. Okay? Again, they flaunted it. They are rich just like we are rich today. And I know there's probably no one in this room that's like, oh, yeah, I'm really rich. Like, we, we just don't do that because we're always, we can look at somebody and we can find somebody who's actually richer than us. But every single person in this room, we are all in the 1% of the most wealthy people in the world. All right? So if Jesus is talking to Laodicea in this way, He's probably going to talk to us the same way. He says, you say that I'm rich and I've become wealthy and need nothing. See, that's what was going on with this church. The current culture around this church within the city, they were super self-sufficient and they were super, you know, they were just like, we don't need your help. We got this on our own. Remember Rome and the earthquake and them saying, hey, we got it. Actually, they have found buildings that have inscribed on the buildings, on the, um, you know, on the buildings that say, by our own might, saying only us, us and only us built this. And so these people were so wealthy just like us that they had become self-dependent. They were so wealthy just like us that they weren't desperate for God. They felt like they had it all handled, and we do the exact same thing. We actually do this in two, two main different ways. Number one, we buy into religion. Right? And we all know what religion is. 
right? Religion is just a list of rules of do's and don'ts of all these things you got to do in order to somehow appease and impress God so that someday when you die, he will say, come on in. That's great. I saw what you did down there. Come on up, right? That is not a scenario that ever happens. I just want to let you know, God never looks at us and say, oh, man, all right, you're good. I'll wage your bad, so you're good. That, that does not happen, okay? That's not reality. What we end up doing, even those of us who say, no, I put my trust in Jesus on the cross, what we end up doing is we start, we start to rely on our good stuff to earn our way ourselves instead of relying on what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago when he died for each and every one of us. And so we do that. We also think we know better than God, right? I mean, think about it. That's why that just shows up in our life. <laughs> like, that's why we don't do marriage God's way. It's why we don't do relationships God's way. It's why we don't do finances God's way. It's why we don't do parenting God's way. It's why we don't do our professional life God's way. It's why we don't do our personal life God's way. because somewhere deep inside, we think we know better than God. I mean, do you see how we do this, like, all the time? You see the issue with us? Like, that should freak you out, man. Right? That should freak you out. See, we may not come out and say it, like, no, no, I don't need you, God. But we live our lives in a way that screams, God, I don't need you right now. I'll let you know when I do. And that, Jesus says, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See here, he's saying, I look at you. It makes me feel sick. I start to gag I throw up a little bit in my mouth, and I have pity on you. Or I, I, he's saying, I pity you. So he's saying, the, these people in Laodicea, they were known for their wealth, remember? Right? They were known for their healing eye diseases and blindness and their expensive clothing. But here, Jesus, he actually attacks each and every one of those things. He says, no, 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 you're not wealthy, you're poor. You're not, you, don't, you don't have, like, you know, you can't see. You're not helping people see. You're blind. He says, and you're naked. You see how Jesus connects this with them? You see what he's doing here? He's saying, you have so much wealth, but you are actually spiritually poor. He's saying, you're healing everybody's physical blindness, but you're blind where it matters the most. He's saying, you're known for your luxurious clothing, but you are naked spiritually. And he's looking at him, and he's like, man, you ugly too. So, like, this is not, you know, this, this is the issue. And so here's what Jesus tells them to do. He gives them a word of advice. He says, here, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, all right, so he's saying instead of you doing all this on your own, and he's doing kind of a play on words with their industries, what they were known for and what they took pride in, he says instead of you having all your wealth, he's like, you need to buy from me my wealth. He says instead of you having your fancy, you know, fashionable clothes, he says, how about you instead buy white clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness and not be exposed? How about that? Right? He says, instead of you, you know, healing everybody else, you got your eye medicine and all that stuff. He says, no, you, know, you should buy from me medicine to spread on your eyes so that you may see. You see how he's trying to connect with these people? Right? He's saying, instead of you relying on you and your talents and your abilities and your wealth, he's saying, you need to come buy from me. You need to come to me. He says, as many as I love, he still loves them. He still cares about them. That's why he's writing them this message in the first place. He says, I rebuke and discipline. So here he is. He's saying, man, I love you and I care about you. And so because of that, I'm going to discipline you. It's not something we like to hear. What, God, what? You know, I'm trying my hardest. No. He says, so be zealous and repent. The word repent, it just means turn around. 
He's like, go the opposite way. You're going the wrong way. Turn around and come back the other way. He says, see, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Not a good thing if Jesus is on the outside of the church knocking to come in. Okay, it's not a good church. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He's trying to get this church to look towards the future, which he has done so often with, with the last, you know, last few churches that we've been looking at. He's saying, you got to look towards the future. Pull out of your narrow-minded, you know, viewpoint of your life. And he's like, look out at the big picture. Look towards the future. That's what we should be investing in. And he says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Question. What kind of church are we? What kind of church are we? See, we have attained, as a church here at Grace, we have attained a level of wealth and comfort unequaled in history. Yay for us, you know? <laughs> Good for us. What would Jesus write to our church here today? And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that can easily get in our way. See, it's not hard to find a lukewarm church. In fact, there's many churches all around us. A lot of you guys came from churches that Jesus would totally describe as lukewarm, churches that he would like to spit out of his mouth. Actually, here's an example that uh, Jerry Ash, a lot of you guys know him, um, gave. My name is Jerry Ash, and I attend Grace Point in Northwood. I was born in... Uh, Willard, Ohio, and my folks moved to Burgoon, and so I attended, my home church was Burgoon. It was a EUB church when, when I grew up, and I accepted Christ when I was nine or ten years old. My wife, Jean, and I got married and went back over to Burgoon. I think in 1967, they became United Methodist, and things changed quite a bit in uh, the pastors we got. Uh, none of them really pushed the gospel to lead people to Jesus. And, and that, that bothered me because I had experienced that when I was a kid. And so Gene and I decided we needed to leave. So we went over to Salem and Bethel, another Methodist church, and they had a Wesleyan pastor, and it was growing. I mean, it was clearful. Then we started to go down, and they gave us another pastor, and then they moved him. And we never recouped from that. We just kept going down. And we opted to close because there's only about 10 families there. Wasn't enough to be in ministry. We closed the church. We went to uh, Grace Church in Fremont. And that was in July of 2019. And then when Tiffin opened up, we went to Tiffin and spent three years in Tiffin. I have never experienced anything like that in my life. People were coming. They were being saved, and it, this was a highlight of my life. It was, it was amazing. We moved up to Otterbein in Pimmerville because my wife has got Alzheimer's. We found out that they had church at Northwood, which is closer than Tiffin or Fremont was to us. So we come here, and uh, Harold's a great pastor. I love to see people come to Christ. We need to hear the gospel preached in the churches and outside the churches. If, if a, a young person would come to Christ in their youth like I did and depend on the Holy Spirit to guide and direct them. They'll live a content life 
a life full of blessings with challenges and problems and things, but you'll have a guidance and you have the love of Christ that will take you through it. So one thing I really like what Jerry had to say is he recognizes the difference between a lukewarm church and a church that preaches the gospel. Actually, that is the difference. He's saying a church has got to preach the gospel, right? What's the gospel? The gospel is just the good news of what Jesus did for each and every one of us 2,000 years ago. It's that, that. That's it, right? And where we put our trust and our faith in. It's the idea that Jesus, who was rich, the Bible says, became poor for us, pouring out his entire life. And we as Christians... Right, think how we respond to that. Right, we spend the majority of what we have, our money, our time, our energy, our talents, our abilities on us and our comfort. Yet then we claim Jesus is God. It's lukewarm. I mean, it's riding the fence. It doesn't make any sense. And God is telling us here today, he's saying, man, quit dating me. All right, make a decision. Right, make a choice. Like, are you in or are you out? Like, quit riding the fence. It makes me sick. And so I'm just going to leave that there, let you deal with that on your own time and, you know, let God work with you on that. But my question is, have you been lukewarm lately? Are you the kind of person that Jesus is talking about here today? I think all of us are to a certain degree. And what Jesus is telling us to do is he's saying, come to me, buy from me, invest in me. I love you. I care about you, I want that relationship with you, but you are the one missing out. And you need to look towards the future. You need to look at the big picture. For us individually, and for us as a church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words, and it's difficult, and it's convicting, I guess. Lord, we are, it's so easy for us to be lukewarm. It's so easy for us to ride the fence. And God, we ask that you help us to stay focused on you. Help us to look towards the future. That helps us, helps us do that. And God, help us to grow in you while we reach out to others and run as hard as we can until, until we're out of time. God, help us as a church to grow, to reach more people in our community. God, we ask you for this. We beg you for this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.